Welcome to the Replay Value Podcast, where we deep dive into the movies we all love to watch over and over again. I'm Phil, joined by my brother from the same mother, our co-host on the West Coast, Warren. What's up, bro? In our 50th episode, we're going to talk about the family sci-fi cult classic, Steven Spielberg's E.T. The Extraterrestrial. Now, the plot of this film, a boy befriends an alien who is stranded on Earth and summons the courage to help him return to his home world. Simple premise, but uh, a classic film that we've loved for years and years, decades at this point now, ever since we were kids. It's just, I love it because I actually hadn't seen this movie in a while and I got to revisit it and experience it with my children for the first time while preparing for this podcast. I mean, this film is a cornerstone of American cinema. Uh, and I also got to experience it for the first time in years and for, had forgotten a lot of moments in the movie. And so I, I had a, an emotional experience in some ways. For It felt like for the first time, even though I had seen it many, many times years and years earlier. This is one of Spielberg's most personal films. Uh, and it, it's his brainchild. Uh, it, he got the idea when he was making Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And I thought it was really interesting to hear him talk about that. A.T. was the gift that came from the heavens for me. I was in Tunisia making Raiders of the Lost Ark. And we were setting up a, a shot, and I was picking up fo- fossils in the desert, which used to be the bottom of the ocean millions of years ago. And we were out there in the Nefta Desert. I was picking up, uh, and I was remembering the end of Close Encounters, when Richard Dreyfus goes up into the mothership, and just before that, the little alien comes down and does the hand signs to Francois Truffaut. And it just hit me out of the sky. I thought, what if the alien had stayed behind on Earth? What if he didn't, what if it was a kind of foreign exchange? Dreyfus goes away and the alien stays. And it suddenly this whole story hit me like a ton of bricks. And, which was really a story about my mom and dad when they got divorced and how I felt as a kid wanting a, a friend like that to fill the void in my life. And, and, and all these things came pouring in and I actually put the story together in a couple of, I think a couple of days. So kind of crazy, put it together in a couple of days. He hired uh, Melissa Matheson to write the script, which took some convincing. Harrison Ford uh, helped him convince her to, to, to write the script to the movie. Uh, and then they got, they got working on completing the first draft. What's odd to me is clearly this is Spielberg's vision, but he's not credited as the writer. He passed it off to someone else, despite him having the ideal way back in 1960 when he was a child. And I guess it was a very early form of the idea. He was created an imaginary friend for himself, almost like a the brother he never had, uh, which is where that befriending an alien part, I guess, would, would have come in. It was nowhere near the, the idea of E.T. that became the script, but it just odd to me that he hired a screenwriter to do it and not did, didn't write it himself. Well, Spielberg's always been more of a director than a writer. I mean, this was his sixth film. Uh, before this, he did Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Close Encounters, which is what helped propel that idea, you know, from his childhood and then growing on it with, you know, what would happen if one of these aliens was stuck on Earth, as he talked about. And then after this movie, you know, just massive Spielberg hits that we all know and love, Jurassic Park, Saving Private Ryan, Schindler's List, so on and so forth. But he is he's usually always hired a writer to write the scripts for him. I mean, he hasn't... Spielberg is not a writer-director per se, uh, like a uh, a Christopher Nolan or a Quentin Tarantino. That's a good point. Yeah, looking at his filmography, he typically directs and or produces. The only movie where he has written, produced, and directed was AI, Artificial Intelligence, which it's kind of weird. And that was Stanley Kubrick's uh, baby that he worked on for many, many years, and then Spielberg took it over after his passing. Uh, you know, but Spielberg is a master of the camera uh, and how he shoots movies, and I-, I thought there was some really cool stuff that he did in making the film. Like, for example, he shot a lot of the film at eye level uh, with the kids, so you got more of a feel with Elliot and E.T. and that relationship developing. Um, and what was really cool, too, and this is a, such a, a, a visionary and an artistic director knowing what he needs to do to get what he wants – is he shot it in chronological order so he could get the kids' emotional uh, life with the movie because they thought E.T. was real. Like, at the end of filming, the kids said goodbye to the puppet E.T., and it was, like, emotional for them. And so that's how he was able to get those great performances out of his actors. 
Well, not only that, to further get great performances out of child actors, he used very little storyboarding, which he hadn't done before. And he did that uh, with the idea to get more spontaneity out of the actors. He wanted them to be in the moment uh, with E.T., with the emotion of the scene. And as as difficult as people say it is to work with child actors, he has got a method because it worked incredibly well. And we'll get talk about that when we get into Stars of the Picture, but he had a great relationship with the casting director on this film, uh, and, and that contributed a great deal. Uh, uh, Carrie Gruffy, actually, uh, in, in casting child actors. Uh, the casting director was uh, one of the best in the business at doing it. Uh, but after they uh, finished the, the, the first draft of the screenplay, uh, they had a Columbia Pictures meeting. Uh, Columbia didn't feel that, that the movie had enough commercial appeal for kids, which is hilarious <laughs> looking at that in retrospect. Uh, <laughs> well, 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 I think that originally they wanted to make a movie called Night Skies, which had a darker plot, but it was kind of like a, a follow-up film to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And mm. e- e- the, there was a subplot in there where an alien befriend, befriends an autistic child that ended up becoming the, the I guess, the kernel of the idea for E.T. And that is what Columbia didn't think had much commercial appeal and passed on. What well, was such a, a a unique type of movie in some ways it hadn't been made before. We had never seen a movie where the aliens weren't presented as an evil, uh, uh, you know, villain that 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 had a uh, that, that that had intentions of inflicting destruction on humanity. This is the first time an alien was like harmless to society. So it, it was a unique story that we hadn't seen in cinema, and uh, you know. They passed on it. Columbia, they put it in turnaround. They had the rights. They weren't going to make it. And uh, turnaround is the death of a script, essentially. It just it just sits there and rots. Spielberg didn't let it sit there. He went to Universal, got them to acquire the rights from Columbia for a million dollars plus 5% of the film's profits, which for Columbia, that 5% of E.T. made them more money in 1982 than any other movie they released that year. That's crazy. That's crazy. It shows you how big of a hit E.T. was. I mean, that thing just was a, a, a money-making machine. Uh, yeah, and I'll, I'll get to that in stats and accolades as far as the, the box office. But uh, I want to talk about the design of E.T. Uh, and oh, how they yeah. delivered that on screen. And it all started with the eyes, uh, which to me, I've said this in a previous episode of The Lion King. Before, when we were doing the animated film, that version before the live action or CGI, whatever you want to call it came out. I said it would not work because if you do too lifelike of animals, you lose the humanity in the eyes. And clearly the filmmakers of ET, they had the same idea because they wanted to, in order for there to be that emotional connection, you had, it had to start with the eyes of ET and it all was built off of that. And that has been pretty common in animation, you know, with the big Disney eyes that's kind of been proven that big eyes audiences love. I mean, even James Cameron took that note when they made Avatar. He wasn't an idiot. He knew that, that, that there are certain proven uh, images that people love, and Big Eyes is one of them. I mean, they, they put a lot of craftsmanship into E.T. I mean, it was a full-body puppet that most of it was performed by a stuntman that was under three foot tall. Yeah, there was a couple stunt people, one of which was a 12-year-old, Matthew Demerit, who was born without legs and could actually walk on his hands. Mm. So anytime they had a scene where E.T. was walking. Like in the kitchen, yeah. Right. Uh, and then included in that, though, within the, the, the full body uh, suit was the uh, four different heads they used while filming. One was animatronic, two they used for facial expressions, and then one was uh, like the costumed head whenever, like you said, like I mentioned, the walking scenes. Yeah, probably for master shots. It's not detailed for close-ups. And the face was modeled after a combination of Carl Sandburg, Albert Einstein, and a pug dog. <laughs> I did not read that. That's funny. That's good. What I thought was pretty cool uh, is E.T. Was, is, was neither male or female. He was a plant-like creature and was approximately 10 million years old. Oh, I didn't realize that either. I didn't know that was canon. Huh? Uh, the voice of E.T. had a little bit of Deborah Winger, which I thought was pretty cool. I mean, that was a big movie star back in the day. Uh, but uh, most of it was performed by an elderly woman, Pat Welsh, uh, who smoked two packs per day. Uh, she went in and did most of her voice work in nine and a half hours, and she made $380. 
That is just crazy. Man, what a deal. Uh, unfortunately, I'd say she, she must have not been in the union. I mean, then I get residuals or royalties on E.T. Because that is a, whew, oh, man, the actors in that movie, that, that, that was a cash cow for them for years. Maybe it probably still is. And speaking of cash cows that were a result of E.T., uh, Reese's Pieces, uh, the candy company, uh, they actually saw a spike of sales of 65% by allowing the usage uh, in the film. Uh, M&M's Smart was the move. original choice. But the filmmakers had the request denied uh, by the Mars uh, company, which makes M&M's, because they thought... Idiot! Idiot! Stupid moron! Ah, such an idiot! Well, they thought that that kids would be scared to eat the candy because of you being in a film about aliens. Well, product placement, as they say, any press is good press, and if you you got something in a movie, people are going to want it. And one of my favorite parts of the episode, the music of the film... And I'm not saying of every episode, but definitely this episode is my favorite part because not only is it a John Williams score, a classic Williams score, but it's E.T., come on. One of the most recognizable, memorable themes uh, in movie history. and, Mm -hmm. And Spielberg felt the same way. John Williams laid a lot of tracks down, I guess you could say it in those crude terms. Uh, He composed a lot of music for the film. And Spielberg gobbled them all up he wanted to use everything he possibly could for et um and you listen to the theme now and it's memorable of course but it wasn't easy for williams to to come up with it he was actually challenged by it because i mean here it is it's not you know star wars we have the you know bombastic theme dealing with the heroes and you're trying to connect to an alien creature theme is so memorable and as you said iconic uh but like, I also read it was one of the main obstacles he came across in his career. Uh, you know, looking back, it's the, one of the uh, trying times he remembers scoring a film is that particular theme, and in particular the, the climax of the movie where the theme is really utilized. Yes, that when when you, when he talks about how much of a challenge it was for him, it's more about the the finale, the climax, and get, scoring the scene. Yeah. Right, and it, he had so much difficulty with it that Spielberg was like, "Hey, you know what? Score it however you want to, however works best, and I will edit my film. I will edit the scene around your score, around that 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 that, that theme there." And that's what they did. That's the confidence that Spielberg has in, in Williams to deliver a great score. Yeah, so uh, an incredible score, an incredible theme, very memorable. The, the theme is memorable, but you know what's cool? I, I do want to throw this in real quick. I don't want to step on your turf, but there's parts of the score that feel very familiar, like a sibling to another Spielberg-Williams movie score. There's just moments that feel like it's kind of cut from Raiders a little bit. It's there, there's just there's some very Spielbergian John Williams sound cues in the film that I feel like I've heard in other movies. Hey, that hap- that's a, that's a common trend that um, you get with John Williams. Like the one that I always think it was very clear to me is in Jurassic Park when the jeeps are driving up to the the main building. The song that plays there is a very reminiscent of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade when they are driving up to the Nazi castle. And that's the great thing about John Williams. Every single one of his themes is unique, but you hear like the other themes within it. Like you know what something is distinctly John Williams, but also unique at the same time. One of the great all-time composers. Right. Uh, one little Easter egg with the theme. Uh, during the Halloween uh, segment, when E.T. is walking by Yoda and he recognizes him, you get a little snippet of Yoda's theme there. Uh, and then the E.T. species, to bring it full circle, actually shows up in 1999's The Phantom Menace, uh, the Star Wars Episode One. The kind yeah, of, the Senate scene. Right, the Senate scene. So it kind of ties those universes together, which I thought was cool. Well, remember, even when he sees Yoda, he goes, home, home, <laughs> like, he, uh, yeah. like he recognizes him, like he's seen him before. And we'll move on to the stars of the picture. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. As I said before, Spielberg had a great relationship with casting director Cary Gruffy uh, with Close Encounters, so very comfortable casting kids. And when you look at the cast of this film, it's it's a kid's movie. I mean, they are the heart and soul of the film. Uh, looking at Henry Thomas, who is essentially the lead of the movie as Elliot. This was his second feature film. He had a brilliant audition. And... Uh... There's a knock on your door and a man comes in, a grown man, not your brother. And he's from NASA, you know, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. And he has found out that you have 
a creature. He doesn't know exactly what he, he has found you have a creature in your closet. A creature that he's been looking for for a long time. And you've had this creature now for three or four weeks. You become best friends with it. And he wants to take the creature away. And he's come with a search warrant. And he's come with permission to take the creature away. And you're not going to let him. Okay? Okay, my God. Now, young man, I understand that you have an alien somewhere in this house. Is that true? Well, is it true? Is there an alien in this house? Yes, sir. Well, as you know, I am from the government. I'm part of... United States government, and I am empowered to take that alien with me. But you can't take him away. He's mine. Well, but the government is bigger than you are, Elliot, and I, I really, I have all the authority to take him, and i got to tell you, I'm going to take him. You can't take him. Well, I'm afraid I have to, son. It's you can't take him away. He's mine. But it's not my choice. The president asked me to come here and get him. I don't care what the president says. He's my best friend. And you can't take him away. He used sense memory and remembered his dog passing away and, and cried in the audition. He, he moved Spielberg so much, Spielberg cried. Wow. And offered him the role in the room. Okay, kid, you got the job. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let me back that up just a little bit. Actually, another actor who I, like, I'm sure you could find the name, but most people don't. It's not out there because you don't want to. You know, it's, it's kind of a bad story. But there was an original actor uh, for this role, but when they got in the room with them to work, within three minutes they realized that the not easy to work with was very bossy, and they fired that actor. And then on a recommendation, Henry Thomas was brought in, and uh, through his improvisation skills, like you mentioned, the sense memory. I got hired on the spot. And like I said, it was only a second movie. After this, he would go on to do as an adult actor. He didn't have any memorable child roles that I recall. I I'm sure he had other movies, but nothing that really stuck with the lexicon. But until Legends of the Fall in 94, played one of played oh, Brad Pitt's brother. Oh, that's right. Uh, Man. Yeah. And uh, he was in Gangs of New York. He played Leonardo DiCaprio's best friend. That's the one I always think of is, is Gangs of New York. I was like, why does that kid look, why does that guy look familiar? He's like, oh, he's <laughs> yeah, I know that guy. Too, yeah. Uh, and most recently, he was in Haunting of Hill House, which I have still yet to see, but I heard it's fantastic. Uh, Matt Flanagan did a great job, so I need to watch it. It's very, very, very good. Yeah. And before we move on, you got to go ahead and anoint him. Henry Thomas, as Elliot, is my MVP. He gives the most valuable performance in the movie. As I said, he, he's the heart of the of the film. We experience the movie through... Uh, Thomas's superb connected performance uh, and the work that he does in creating the relationship with the E.T. puppet alone should get him uh, the, the, the little junior Oscar that they gave uh, Judy Garland uh, for Wizard of Oz. I mean, I, I think his performance is, is, is that worthy as a kid actor. Yeah, the emotion that he delivers on screen, uh, that really, it, it's so powerful and it's so difficult uh, for a child actor to, to, to pull off and and a great choice for MVP. For a moment, I thought you were going to go with E.T. themselves as, as the MVP because you got Pat Welsh there, you know. E.T., phone home. Let me, give me another cigarette, you know. So, I mean. Yeah, it's like the, 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 the what, uh, Marge's sisters from The Simpsons. Yeah. <laughs> Henry Thomas was clearly the right choice there, yeah. D. Wallace is Mary. She's had currently 255 credits. She's been working nonstop since 1974. I mean, wow, just working. Uh, most recently, she was in a film, 2020 uh, Forever Love, which is like a rom-com. Uh, but she is constantly recognized in public as E.T.'s mom, mm. the mom from E.T. So despite all these credits, this movie is what she's most known for. Yeah. The brother, uh, Michael, uh, played by Robert McNaughton, I read that he auditioned for the role eight different times before he got it. Really? Yeah. Wow. I, I, and Maybe I, I was, was it just a lack of credits, or I, I wonder why they would test him that much. I, I'm not sure. Probably a very coveted role, you know, working with Spielberg. Uh, but um, I couldn't really find any is the reason why, but uh, I would say it was just probably a very competitive field. And they didn't really mm. – they they – didn't have someone like Henry Thomas come in and just, you know, win it on the spot. And a lot of actors, you know, went on to have careers after this. A lot of people involved with the movie, uh, 
this actor only has 13 credits currently, and he's worked on and off uh, since this movie. Last project was in 2015, but he had a gap between 1988 and 2014 where he had no credits at all. Hmm. So almost, what, 30 years nearly. Peter Coyote as Keys. Uh, he had his first film credit at 40 years old in 1980, and this was his fourth film credit. Oh, wow. uh, after this, he had some. Uh, had a pretty good part in Patch Adams. That, well, it was memorable, and uh, he was also in Aaron Brockovich. And got to talk about Drew Barrymore as Gertie. This is the true blue movie star of the bunch. Uh, this was only her second feature film, her only credit for 1982. They auditioned a lot of who would end up being big-name actors. Uh, Juliette Lewis and Sarah Michelle Gellar both auditioned. But Drew Barrymore is Hollywood royalty. I mean, she would yeah. go on to do a shitload of hits rom-coms. I mean, that is her, that's her specialty. Uh, she did a handful of rom-coms that are huge hits. You know, Never Been Kissed, Fifty First Dates, uh, and even a, a blockbuster Charlie's Angels. So she's, she's had an illustrious career uh, since this film. Honorable mentions in the cast, C. Thomas Howe as Tyler. Uh, this is before Outsiders, and it was his feature film debut. And Erica Elenick as the pretty girl. Uh, she would go on to star in Under Siege, Blob, Beverly Hillbilly. She was the schoolgirl, the classmate of Elliot's. Uh, she's actually credited as pretty girl. She does not have a name. Yeah, that's why I credits. said that. Yeah, yeah. I, I know. Just wanted to. You does know. she even have a line? Does she even have a line? I just uh, feel like it's a really featured role. I don't even remember her speech. I think she says, hey, Elliot. Like, she tells him hi when he's riding away oh, on his okay, bike. Okay, so it's like a yeah. five and under. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Moving into stats and accolades from E.T. Release date was June 11th, 1982 in 1,103 theaters on a budget of $10.5 million. And I'm going to go at lengths a little bit here, Warren. So it just, this movie deserves it. Opening weekend, $11.8 million. It was number one mm-hmm. at the box office, not only that weekend, but for the first six weeks of it, it's released. It would go on to hold the number one spot uh, for 16 weeks, not in a row, just 16 weeks spread out. It was number one. That is the record from, for all films released from 1982 to the present. Uh it did so it still stands. It still stands. Yes, it's sixteen weeks. I think number two that, is fifth. That is a box office record to stand this long through the superhero <laughs> craze. That that's that's impressive. You may need to fact check me, but I think number two is Titanic with fifteen. So uh, fifteen or fourteen, mm. maybe. Uh, it did oh, not. That's because movies played longer back then. That's one of the reasons. Not yeah, not only longer, but it did not fall out of the top five until the weekend of December seventeenth through the nineteenth. So it opened in June, and it was in the top five every week for you know for the rest of the year, essentially almost. In its its last week in the theaters, it was number four. It made five point eight million dollars, and that was one year later to the to the the weekend. It was in theaters for one year. It's crazy. Uh, but domestically, it did have a couple re releases in theaters for different anniversary editions, but it would go on to uh, overall, it has pulled in domestically 435.1 million and a worldwide take of 793.4 million. Wow. So not in the billion club, but that's back when movies didn't make as much as they did. Yeah. I mean, again, Uh, you're talking about a thousand theaters nowadays, big blockbusters open up at 4,500. Yeah. Yeah. At least. Yeah. Right around 4,000, yeah, some of them, yeah. A box office rank for the year, number one, and it surpassed Star Wars as the number one movie of all time. That record would stand until Steven Spielberg released Jurassic Park 11 years later. Yeah, I would say from that era, it would be difficult for us to find a more successful box office film. One of Spielberg's defining successes. Uh, home media, 15 million VHS tapes sold, equaling over $250 million. So it broke a billion bucks after you factor in the VHS sales. Uh, Six million rentals in the first two weeks. That was the record until Batman came out in 1989. Hmm. And an interesting nugget here, the film was not released... On uh, to home media until 1988. Oh wow! Yeah, I mean, it was it was in theaters for a year, so I mean, you had to wait uh, seven more years. Excuse me, five more years after the, it left theaters before it. That's uh, I I don't remember. See, I do remember them doing that with some movies, like the '89 Batman we just mentioned. I remember having to wait. We almost had to wait a year until after that was out of theaters before it came out. Do you remember how long that home? I remember being a kid, but I remember it was. It took a lot longer for it to come out on VHS than 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 the other films. 
Uh, yeah, I would say that the average was probably close to a year at that time. Uh, scores of the film, Rotten Tomatoes, 98%, Metacritic, 91 and a cinema score, A+. Super rare, and it is the first known film to accomplish that. Universal acclaim, Roger Ebert, four out of four stars, saying, quote, this is not simply a good movie. It is one of those movies that brush away all our cautions and win our hearts. Won four Oscars... Sound, visual effects, sound effects, and the score. So one of John Williams' Oscars. Yeah, yeah. Um, If it wouldn't have won the Oscar, I would have time traveled back to 1982 and beat some ass. Yeah. Well, Oscars have misfired before. Uh, Five other nominations uh, for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Cinematographer. So it was nominated for the majors. It was the only Best Picture nominee not to have any acting nominees that year. Music of the year, 1982, the number one Billboard single for year end of 1982, Physical by Olivia Newton-John. Oh, man, what a jam. And the best record of the year Grammy winner, Rosanna by Toto, another classic of mine, another favorite, love it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, great, great decade for music. Uh, movies of the year, as we established, number one box office hit, E.T., followed by Tootsie and An Officer and a Gentleman. Best Picture Oscar winner was Gandhi, starring Ben Kingsley, and it was Daniel Day-Lewis's feature film debut. Oh, yeah. That's right. Worst Picture Razzie winner, Inchon, which starred Lawrence Olivier and Jacqueline Bissett. It was a huge misfire. Was it just called Inchon, or was it the Battle of Inchon? Well, it was based on the Battle of Inchon, a real uh, battle in the Korean War. I have never heard of that movie. That's why I had to ask. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, <laughs> TV shows of the year number one Nielsen scripted show was Dallas followed by MASH and Magnum P.I. best drama series winner Hill Street Blues and it would go on to be a four time best drama series winner only three other shows did that Mad Men Game of Thrones and West Wing so it, and oh a, wow an elite distinction uh, powerhouse drama series uh, best comedy series Emmy winner Cheers in its first season prices of the year gas was 91 cents Stamp was 20 cents, and the average income was 21,000. Events of the year, David Letterman's show debuts on NBC. The first issue of USA Today is published. The first CD player is sold in Japan, and the Weather Channel debuts. All right, let's talk about our best scenes and lines from E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Uh, Now, best scenes... Difficult to narrow it down. Uh, so let's jump right into it with your runner-up for best scene, Warren. As with most of the movies we do, pretty hard to narrow it down. That's we fair. Do yeah, that, that's fair. Yeah. Runner-up scene, though, is when E.T. and Elliot get drunk. Because it's the first time we kind of get a sense of this connection they have. It caught me off guard. I didn't quite know what to make of it. And you're watching E.T. stay at home. And that's probably what I enjoy the most is you're seeing an alien, like, lay around and be lazy during a work day and there's something that's very entertaining and, and certainly unique at this point we hadn't seen that done um and so i like seeing him live like a person integrating himself into junk food and television yeah i enjoy that too especially the, the rummaging <laughs> through the fridge because it's just like even though he's an alien it's just like a kid going through the fridge like ah, fuck this shit fuck this shit Ooh, beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. or maybe as an we, adult we identify kid, and relate we, we we just really relate with et we really start to to, to care and like him and that's just a scene that increases his likability as a character a lot. Yeah, that was also my runner-up. What? Did we just become best friends? Yep. I love that connection, but it starts out comical, but then it builds into like the the realization of like, oh, they're connected in this way. Again, it's it's not really all. Mm-hmm. It's not just funny. It's there's a, an actual genuine connection there. Uh, and then, and then it, it culminates with uh, him watching the movie, which was, um, what is it called? The Quiet Man, the John Wayne film from like the 1950s. Uh, but then the, you have that kiss, that moment with the pretty girl. And you even have him like stand up on a kid so he could be tall enough to kiss the girl. Well, that's technically a different scene. I mean, you're kind of, that's, you're talking about a sequence here. I mean, when Elliot frees the frogs and then recreates the kiss from the quiet man. I mean, I had that as an honorable mention. I technically consider uh, that to be a different I, I, scene. I tie it together because the entire, it's a, you're right, it's a sequence. That's fair. But it, it's more about um, th- that illustrates the connection between E.T. and Elliot. 
and, mm-hmm. and you can't have the drunkenness portion without the other portion too. It's all about how they're connected. And maybe the drunkenness is what gives you know Elliot the guts to do it in the first <laughs> Possibly, place. Possibly, yeah. All right, what was your winner? My winner, and I struggled with this, but I was first just going to go with the first time E.T. and Michael fly. But I got to say, man, like I told you earlier, there's parts of this movie I relived again. And when E.T. was dead, I just like, for whatever reason, I just didn't remember him coming back. So I was like, well, I guess he's, you know, kind of dead. I mean, of course he's (laughs) going to come back, right? (laughs) Dumbass. But I found myself sucked into the experience and not judging the movie or thinking of what's going to happen. I was like, oh, man, E.T.'s gone. And then when he comes back, I just was so like overwhelmed with joy for the characters and but so that that that's what made me change it is is when Elliot summons the strength to to help him escape and and Elliot escapes with ET on the bikes they're being pursued uh, they're running over the hills and, and, and finding ways to get away in a very crafty on the bikes and um, and then ET and Elliot fly again and it's this time to avoid the police barricade and to me that that's got to be my winner. So you would say the, I guess the finale, the climax, when the, the whole group, they lift off from the street and are flying yeah, yeah above the city. Okay. Um, yeah. Visual effects uh, don't hold up so well. <laughs> they don't but, hold uh, up. Uh, oh, man. I was a little surprised. I was like, come on, Spielberg. Uh, I mean, you know, but uh, yeah, it, you, you, the, 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 the scene is so powerful. Well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to disagree with you there. Although it's powerful, my winner for best scene was the first flight with Elliot and E.T. Uh, that ha- mm. Because that's the first time you get to feel that emotion when Elliot doesn't know what's going to happen. In the, in the end, you know what's going to happen. Everybody knows it's, it's happening. Now, it still delivers and the score hits and it's great. But that first time, you don't know E.T. can make a bicycle fly with him on it. So he loses control and he's going down that hill and you're like, oh shit, what's mm. going to happen? And then they take off and the music hits and it's just pure exuberance from Elliot as they're soaring through the air. You get the classic uh, shot by the moon that is now the Amblin Entertainment logo, Spielberg's production company. How you could pick the second time that happens over the first time and the elation that comes with it as your winner, I don't know. But both are great. But that- I, I, No, it's because of the joy that E.T. was alive, and I was just so happy that, that he was going to get a happy ending. And, and I th- that's kind of what turned it for me because I think I was just more emotionally invested at that point. Uh, but I see why you picked that because that is where you get the iconic E.T. silhouette shot uh, of the backdrop of the moon. Which, you know, I love how Batman, infamously, when we talked about that movie already, 89 <laughs> Batman kind of gave a tribute shot to it. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's fair. That's fair, yeah. Um, I had a couple honorable mentions. One was the finale when they're all racing away from the police, the climax. Well, that was what I just said, yeah. That, that was my honorable mention, so that, I had it in there. But uh, I, I look at these as separate, but um, before E.T. comes back, this the emotion of the, the goodbye when they're in that little makeshift hospital in the, their home. And, uh, and Elliot is just saying, you know, stay with me. And he, you know, and, and you see him losing him as Elliot is getting healthier and his vitals are returning to normal, but he's so desperate to hang on yeah. to that connection to ET. Oh, it just breaks your heart. It's such that's a, that's where Henry Thomas's performance is the strongest. Those moments is really what hold up the film is, is his work in those scenes. And that's the great thing about these films. Like you and I, we watched this movie so many times as a kid that we, it's just like anytime you've seen a movie this much like this and Ferris Bueller, Back to the Future, it's just you know the beat so well, you almost tune them out because you know everything that's going to happen. But with E.T., you and I haven't watched this in several years, so you get to like experience it again almost for the first time. Like Certain, you Some moments you get to experience for yes. the, yeah, the first time. And this emotion of this scene was one of them for me. And that's why I picked my winner because I had a moment I had forgotten that I got an emotional lift from, and it, it, it swayed my decision. So we almost matched up there too. Well, you know the old expression. Did we just become best friends? Nope. Yeah, so what, what, what other honorable mentions did you have? Uh, honorable mention is when Michael and, by accident or effect, Gertie meet E.T., <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Knocks the shelf down. Yeah. It drew Barrymore just, I think, uh, really, really great in that moment. And when you see the trailer, like TV spots for it, that they always show that, uh, her screaming. Um, 
and moments. Uh, it, it, this is just an honorable. It's not seen. It's just moments. I want an honorable. I love it when he, the, the, this is such a great world building with a character when the flowers grow. Mm, yes. And they wilt away. And we kind of get a symbolization of E.T.'s condition based on the flowers. And he, the fact that he heals with his hand. Man, what a whoever. I don't know if the Spielberg had that or, or uh, Matheson brought that on when she wrote the script. But, wow, that that's just a really, I think, a very uh, great touch to the movie. Yeah, and it, there's a lot of great little moments like that in the film that you kind of take for granted. But, like, one of them I really paid attention to watching this time, and, and I didn't really have it as an honorable mention, but I want to call it out, is the brilliant use of the keys for keys. You know, you, you look at him as you hear the jangle and you see it, and he's like this menacing, ever-present, pursuing government agent. But then when you meet him, it's just like he's on their side. It's that subversion of expectation. Uh, mm-hmm. But just that you only see him from the waist down and you only see the keys. Uh, I, I love them. There's so many, there's several moments throughout the film where they do that, but it just, it's just so great how Spielberg uses that to set the tone and the, the kind of the... What, to get the perspective from the child's point of view? The, get the perspective from the child's point of view, but also just kind of set the tone of like the menacing government agent. Uh, but that turns out not to be that menacing. In the is, shadow, in the shadows. Exactly, yeah. Which is like a classic, uh, you know... Um, chestnut of cinema <laughs> you know having a, a figure in the shadows watching but then also as so often it is with kids you're expecting something you're scared of something but it turns out to be on your side much like keys was um mm-hmm. all right let's move on to our best lines from the film uh, i kept it pretty slim here um the quotes that i had are great there's not a whole lot to choose from believe it or not but the ones that 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 are good are, are mm-hmm. really really good um, I'll kick things off with my runner-up for best line. Um, it's when Michael is explaining the connection between E.T. and Elliot to the scientists, to the doctors. Uh, and really the last line there where he says, No, Elliot. Elliot feels his feelings. Then it kind of clicks for you of how deep their connection goes. What was your runner-up for best line? My runner-up? Maybe uh, an elf or a leprechaun. There's nothing like that, penis breath! Elliot! <laughs> Sit down. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's good, yeah. I like that. Okay. All right, what was your winner? My winner, when E.T. says, ouch. Oh. And it's not even the word or the line because E.T. doesn't say a lot in the movie. When he does, it's powerful. But ouch is subtext. He's not saying ouch. It's his way of expressing love and connecting with humanity in those moments. And when he says goodbye, it's his way of saying I love you in a a subtextual way. That's kind of what I get from it. So mine is when he says it several times in the film and ouch. And especially at the end, I think it has, it carries a lot of weight. I had the same thing in a way that it mine was more of an exchange, less than a line, but when they both say ouch to each other and ET ends up by, by saying, I'll be right here. Um, ah, it's such a good moment. Oh man. Yeah, you get emotional. It, uh, I do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just let it out. Have a good cry. Come on. Okay, that's enough. I had an honorable mention, uh, only one, and it's when uh, the one of the kids asked, Well, can it just beam up? This is reality, Greg. <laughs> that's actually really good. That's an underrated line. That's that that, that is really good. Um, cause for the first time Elliot is in control and he's not, can't be picked on as by Michael's friends. He's one calling the shots there. That's, that's good. I have to throw this out there as an honorable mention, just because of the high usage and how iconic it is. Yeah, that, that's most iconic line from the film. Moving on to judge Bob's recasting court where Warren and I recast the film with today's stars. All rise for the honorable judge Bob presiding. Gentlemen, you may be seated. Recasting court is now in session. Today's hearing 
we will determine a recasting victor in the case of the 1982 Enchanted Fantasy E.T., the extraterrestrial. Counselors, I've reviewed your notes. I really look forward to hearing your arguments. But before we get into it, I want to make darn sure we do not ever have a tie again. So at random, and it will be announced when they come up, a character will be named. That, if there is a tie at the end of the segment of the hearing here, uh, that tiebreaker will determine the winner. Do you guys have any questions about that? No, Your Honor. No, sir, Your Honor. Let's get right into it. Starting us off here, we've got uh, first on the docket for the character of Keys, of Adam Scott versus Edward Norton. I'd love to hear the argument for Mr. Norton. Uh, Edward Norton, <clears throat> I think he would... This character, Keys, is, represents the, the face of the American government, the, the, and I think Edward Norton would do a great job of embodying that and also having that uh, avuncular quality uh, that his character does when he talks to Elliot. Uh, there is that suspense earlier in the film that he's kind of in the shadows, but when we do meet him, he is revealed to, for all intents and purposes, to be a good guy, and I think Edward Norton would do a great job with that. And Phil, your counter. Yeah, with Adam Scott, I actually had a very similar uh, perspective on the character. Uh, Edward Norton, a great choice, but I feel like not quite the right fit. But similar, similar line of thinking in that you know you have the keys that are that are dangling, and he's menacing up front. But as soon as you see his face, you it's instant disarming. You know you can trust the guy that he is on Elliot's side, and I feel Adam Scott is a great personification of that. And furthermore, I feel like Edward Norton would has the would can pr- pr- portray the sophistication that the character would need uh, to to that you would believe he would have the intellect to be in the position he's in. Again, I feel like it's two sides of the same coin. Uh, uh, Edward Norton may have a, a little bit of advantage because of the age, but I, I feel like when you look at Adam Scott, he's more of a I'm on your side, whereas Edward Norton has a can I really trust this guy quality? Whereas you trust Adam but Scott. I th- but I think that adds an element to the film that would uh, that, that, that makes a compelling theater. Okay, uh, maybe as if I was making the film, maybe I would want you not to not quite know uh, and to have a. He is trustworthy, but there's a little bit of that. Uh, but that, doubt that, that's in not there. the point and, when you see him. As soon as you see him, as soon as you see him, you know he's on their side. So that 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 argument doesn't. Now, play that's here. not the case though. It is the case. Even, All right, so, gentlemen, yeah, order no, on the court. On. I love the banter. It's you're, fantastic. You're, and you guys are arguing such great characters. Warren, go ahead. Yeah, Your Honor, if I may, real quickly. Uh, there is a scene uh, where E.T. is dying and the scientists are screwed around him, and Spielberg shot it to make it look like the scientists were hurting him from a filmmaker perspective. So he wanted to give the impression the scientists weren't helping him. And ultimately, that is why Elliot rescues E.T. But that's not Keys, though. That, that, that's not Keys. That, he, yes, maybe they look that way, but you... Keys is the one that was on Elliot's side from the Keys beginning. Keys is wearing the same uniform. He runs the show. It's, his, yeah. it's under his watch. Okay. I thought Adam Scott. I was shocked at that. I loved it. I mean, Edward Norton, how do you not pick him in just about anything? But Adam Scott takes this one. Good, Good job. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Uh, the next character on the docket is going to be our tiebreaker if needed towards the end. Uh, Miss Mary Mila Kunis versus Emily Blunt. I'd like to hear the argument for Mila Kunis. I almost wanted to go with Drew Barrymore here. Oh, uh, just ooh, to kind of bring it together. Nice. You know? I, w- um, I, I, w- I would have conceded if you would have. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a Trump card. Yeah, that's a, yeah. a low-hanging fruit, though. I, th- I thought it was too low-hanging. So uh, as much as I wanted to do that, because I thought it would be cool, uh, I went with uh, Mila's great. I, I think uh, she's one of the best uh, – She's such, she has such a star quality. Anytime you see her in a movie, you just want to hang out with her and watch her in the movie. I, anytime she's in something, you, you want to finish it. You want to see where it goes. And um, I think at this point of her career, it would be a great transition to start seeing her play the, the, the mother character. And I think she would embody that youthful single mother the same way that Dee Williams does in the original. And Phil? Well, um, I can see that to a degree. Like if Elliot was her only child, yes, a young child. However... Mila Kunis is still in the role category selection of one where she is trending young to the younger roles, not quite single mom. And if she is, maybe it's a young child. She's a single mother. Dee Williams looks pretty young in the movie. She, man. No, no, and she is. But what I'm saying is, is that I cannot see Mila Kunis as a single mother of three children, one of which are is 15, 16 years old, and, and, and Michael. Whereas Emily Blunt, I, you get the same qualities and incredible, you know, 
you would be an incredible mother figure in the film, an incredible actress. Uh, you, you saw her kind of in that role in a quiet place, but also she just has that very warm quality that you would like to see in a mother on screen. And I feel like she's a much better fit than Mila Kunis. Okay. You, okay. For the very reason the kids would be able to get away with this stuff under Mila's watch. You wouldn't be able to do it under Emily's Emily's would run. She'd run a tight ship in her house. No fucking way that, 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 that alien's going to hide out that long without her finding out about it. There's a lot of that what you know this character represents that Mila would be a good fit for, but Emily Blunt's Emily Blunt's is the uh, the actress. Uh, next on the docket, uh, Gertie, the five year old Gertie. We have Julia Butters versus Olive Elise Abercrombie. I'd like to hear the argument for Julia Butters first. Yeah, I went with Julia Butters mostly because you would have an actor play younger. At least I would in this situation. And Julia Butters, she's. Uh, nine but she could easily play seven or eight uh, uh and you could put her right at that age uh she plays younger uh so i i think i i could hook her in there uh drew, drew barrymore was seven when she did it so i i think you could have Ju- julia could come pretty close uh seven eight years old hmm. and i think she'd be perfect in it i mean look at her once upon a time in hollywood and even uh american housewife she's she's uh i i haven't seen her be bad in anything yeah and Phil? No argument that she would be astounding in this role. However, she is actually 11 years old. And I feel like mm-hmm. because Drew Bremer was six when she, six or seven when she did this, there's a, I guess, just a youthful innocence that, like, that just coming out of the toddler years that this character has of Gertie that Drew Barrymore met. I feel like, um, Julia Butters is great actress, but too, a little past that point and a little too aware of the world to kind of capture. Um, capture that essence of the Gertie character, and especially with a lot of her. Well, maybe dialogue. her character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is aware of the world, but she could play someone that her character in American Housewife is. I feel. I feel like she she plays. I do. I do want to say she's the Gertie in American Housewife. But that that was. But she's eleven now. I don't think she fits it for this role. I do want to say it's incredibly. She doesn't hard. play eleven in the show, dude. I, okay, but I'm just saying I couldn't see it now with the my selection with uh, uh, Olive Elise Abercrombie. Uh, you mentioned uh, how Henry Thomas. Who is that? Stars, uh, star, stars, recasting stars. Uh, can you tell me who that is? I don't really know. Yeah, she was in Haunting of Hill House, which Henry Thomas is in. We talked about that earlier. Uh, the Netflix show. But I do want to say that it's incredibly hard to cast this role because you are trying to find someone to fit the the box of a six or seven year old. It's 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 super challenging. So, Judge, I don't envy your decision making here, but I do feel like uh, Olive Elise was a better fit. Unfortunately, and I mentioned it early on, Gertie is five years old by the writing. That was her age. You can't have an 11-year-old teeth play a five-year-old. I think that there's a handicap going into this. Phil and I having kids. I'm in a huge disadvantage here. Oh, my God. As you get into the other characters and their age and how they fit into it, 11 and 15 with uh, with Michael, the, the banter, the, the the back and forth, the kind of picking on. There's certain aspects of it that don't play out the same way. You need that extra youthful-looking child for 30. I feel like this so almost should have been a uh, – I feel like this almost should have been a uh, – take it off the board just because how are you going to find a five- or six-year-old to fit this role? That's so tough, yeah. Next on the docket, Michael, we have Jaden Martell versus – Finn Wolfhard. I'd like to hear the argument for Finn Wolfhard. Uh, Finn Wolfhard, you know, I see the, the the actor that plays Michael in the original E.T. and with how Finn Hart has grown up being a young teenager, uh, kind of one of the guys, especially the beginning scene playing Dungeons and Dragons, I, it's hard not to see him playing it. And, and of all the actors, and I don't typically dip into the Stranger Things pool, but of all the actors in Stranger Things, Finn Wolfhard, his reps, whoever his agents are, fucking are doing great. Like they have put that kid in some movies and he's done really well. And he, he's, he looks like he's going to have a, a pretty good career. Yeah. I know judge uh, that you thought I would be the one picking a stranger things alumni. Uh, however I wanted to, but I felt like for it's, this is almost like the breakfast club where I felt like I had to stay away from the stranger things bucket. But uh, Jade Martell, you know, is kind of like a Finn Wolfhard, kind of like that. Uh, you know, you're getting that essence there. Okay, Finn Wolfhard wins this one. I Damn mean, there's it! No question. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, there's he. He nails this role. I, I I don't see how you guys did not agree on this one. I, unless you just didn't want to burn up the you know 
the one the the option you only get two that that, that i want to save my stranger things character pool uh but yeah no, i know i was going to concede to the finn wolfar that's a it's a great choice i do want to say though how 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 weird is it um talking about subverting expectations that you have a character that plays dungeons and dragons who is also on the football team because he comes home with the pads i just thought that was interesting uh dungeon and dragons was probably i think a little bit more popular back then. Yeah, it's pretty know. nerdy it's, oh it's always been yeah. pretty nerdy i would yeah. know i play oh all right well last on the call list here top of the call list we have elliot and that is roman griffin davis versus miss julia butters I'd like to hear the argument for Miss Julia Butters. Uh, clearly me. Obviously, Warren's not going to cast Julia Butters twice in the same movie, although she's probably talented enough where she could pull it off. Um, I, did, I did. I went a little different direction, did a gender swap with this one. Instead of Elliot, she would be Ellie. Uh, but you know, just the depth of emotion for the character that is required that Henry Thomas executes uh, masterfully uh, I, I feel like the pool of child actors that could pull that off is very small. Julia Butters is at the top of that list. A clear that that's why I went with the gender swap. And uh, Warren, go ahead and, and talk about Roman Griffin Davis here. Roman Griffin Davis, Jojo Rabbit uh, carried that film. It was a great movie, one of the best of the year. And that's a great choice. I, I will hats off to that. I was not even thinking about that. That's a fantastic choice for that role. That's he's a, he is a great fit. Uh, and he's he's thirteen, uh, and Henry Thomas was eleven. Well, he was actually Roman Griffin was twelve when it came out. He's thirteen now, so he's only one year off. But when you look at him in Jojo Rabbit, he could easily be seven or eight no, years no, old. He, he, uh, he, he, he could, and and. I think that's the point is like that 10 year old, that, that much of a shift down is, is appropriate. Well, the good news is, uh, Elliot is now Ellie, Julie Butters. Yes. Uh, Phil coming out strong. I am a golden God. I will say that going into this, Warren almost conceded defeat because he said, because it's, you know, I, I, the advantage of watching movies with my kids and the child actors that I would, have a little bit of a leg up going into this, and it, it, it paid off. Yeah, well, you would think I'd be the one dipping into Stranger Things because I, I don't watch anything with kids other than that. See, that, that's the thing. On a, on you a only had basis. Stranger Things to dip into. Let's just focus, you know, for a moment here. Phil, every time he doesn't dip in Stranger Things, he pays for it. Warren, every time you oh, dip shit. into Stranger Things, it works out for you. Guys. Oh, my gosh, dude. You're right. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> Counselors, recasting court is adjourned. Fan theory time. Uh, and this is a good one. I know I've uh, been off a couple past uh, a couple of the past episodes, but I actually have a, a juicy one for you. E.T. Well, the the creature that comes to Earth, uh, but the E.T. that we know is, in fact, a Jedi Knight. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Coming from you, you somehow do that. Well, here's the evidence for it. We know that they exist in the same universe. The species had a place in the Senate in the Star Wars, uh, The Phantom Menace. And we see E.T. Uh, making objects flow with his mind. Sound familiar? Healing things? Sound familiar? Clearly a practitioner of the Force. Prove me wrong. Okay, I'll go with maybe he's a practitioner of the Force. I don't know if he's a full-fledged Jedi Knight with a lightsaber. <laughs> okay, that's so. fair. Okay, I'll meet you in the middle on that one. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, I think he's got some connection with the Force. I mean, he's obviously friendly with Yoda based on their interaction. At the, he mistakes him when they're out trick-or-treating. Can you imagine, though? It's like you said, what, E.T. is 10 million years old or something like that? And, you know, Star Wars is a, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So here's this creature that this whole planet that he's from probably knows and loves that is legendary in their history books. And he's just like, hasn't seen him in millions of years. He's like, holy shit, what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah. All right, that was it, though. And we'll close out the episode discussing the legacy of E.T., the extraterrestrial. This is a rescue movie. E.T. saves Elliot. Elliot saves E.T. At its core, um, 
it, it has so many themes uh, running through it, so many layers. Uh, this is a very, as I said earlier, it's probably Steven Spielberg's most personal work. And, and when a director does a film that's that personal, it's usually some of their best work. Uh, that, that's somewhat of a consensus with filmmakers. And, you know, Spielberg used the story of his own parents' divorce to inform the family dynamic on top of getting the idea from Close Accounts of the Third Kind, if an alien were to stay behind, what would happen? So it was like a combination of those two narratives that, that, that gave birth to this movie. Yeah, the theme of it, though, is that connection, though, of um, coping of with the with the loss or I guess with being alone uh, of that absence there and alienation uh, alienation and literally how to resolve that from befriending an alien um and, and the fact that we had never seen that before is uh is it, just it's kind of hard to believe of, of how it would revolve after that point I mean you had um really a change in the genre of alien films I mean if you look back from the 50s and 60s like you said, they were all evil. The aliens are bad. Even E.T. itself started out as a much darker film idea uh, that turned into, once combined with that personal mix of Spielberg, revolutionized that industry. All right, well said. Uh, you know, but I think the big lesson from the film, I mean, you know, some other themes that really in inform the lesson to learn from the movie, communication and mutual understanding. This story's central alien-human friendship is an analogy for how real-world adversaries can overcome their differences. A great lesson that we can all remember. Uh, but I, I want to talk also about the, uh, the legacy it left on blockbuster films. I mean, this is a movie that... Um, changed how m how movies could deliver at the box office and what they could be. I mean, going into, you had this film where Columbia Pictures didn't think it could be commercially successful, and it went on to be, at the time, the highest grossing movie um, for, for, for almost a decade, or over a decade, excuse me. Well, yeah, it, it, it paved the way for sci-fi movies involving children and their experiences. We got a lot more uh, films with children uh, as the leads. It, when you talk about the themes of the film, it really ties directly into Steven Spielberg's trademarks as a director. Uh, you know, the, the fractured, divorced family with an absentee father. That is a common tropes in his films. Uh, some other trademarks of Spielberg. The Sweeping Score by John Williams, of course. Uh, ordinary People in Extraordinary Circumstances. An Emphasis on Childhood, Kids supernatural among normal and then of course some of his classic uh, well-known shots the Spielberg face the close-up and you get the reflection shot he, he's done that a lot too uh, the parent thing the divorce trope um, that's used in movies to like, you know is whether it be to set up a theme or for the child or what they're going through that is something that is directly that was directly uh, an influence for Pixar films, even with the first Toy Story. And I, maybe they didn't pull it directly from ET, but that trope, as common as it is, I would say has to have some influence beginning back with ET. All-time list of the film voted 20th greatest film of all time by Entertainment Weekly, number one greatest family film by Channel Four in the UK. And some of the uh, American Film Institute list, number six most inspiring film of all time, and 44th most thrilling movie of all time. And number three on the top 10 science fiction films of all time. And in 2007, AFI ranked E.T., the extraterrestrial, number 24 on the greatest movies of all time. Wow. Thought I, I thought it was great, a lot of great movies. I figured it would be a little higher, but... Uh, and we, 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 you know, it's fun to recast the film if it, with today's stars. But if the film came out today, I feel like the success that it had, a sequel would have already been in the works. So it surprised me that there was never a sequel to E.T. and that there still hasn't been. Well, Spielberg had a proposed script idea. Uh, there was a few different ideas I came across. The one that seemed to have the most footing is it would have taken place on E.T.'s home planet. But he decided to scrap the idea because he felt that wasn't what the first E.T. movie was about. It was never about E.T. going home. That, that's, so he, he felt that ultimately the sequel would ruin the original film and, and, and quote, uh, it would lose its virginity. I also read a version where there were evil aliens 
that were yeah, coming that's the other to one I came across. yeah that that were coming to you know attack or mess with the Henry Thomas and his family and ET had to come back but again that would mess with the original uh, vision and uh, the motion mm-hmm. and uh, the themes of the first film. Yeah, the closest we've gotten to a sequel was a short film sequel starring Henry Thomas, and it was in a uh, Xfinity commercial. It was titled A Holiday Reunion, and he has a family of his own, and he reunites with E.T. for Christmas. Ah! Elia. You came back. My son, my family. Lots changed since you were here. It's called the internet. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, the the commercial focuses on the importance of family coming together for the holidays. Yeah, it's funny that it, it, it just recently came out in uh, the November 2019. Uh, but it's funny because my kid, uh, my four-year-old, actually saw that one before he saw ET. I didn't realize my wife had showed him that. So as soon as we started watching E.T., he's like, oh, they're going to fly with bicycles. I'm like, damn it, he ruined it. <laughs> it's like the, 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 the short film, the commercial ruined the movie somehow. Yeah. Over 1,680 connections in pop culture with other media. Uh, there is a Simpsons parody, of course. Treehouse of Horror, 18, where Bart harbors Kodos the alien. Well, I would like to phone home to tell my family I'm okay. To do so, I would need the following items. Get them now. Fiber optic cable, uranium-235, two tickets to Avenue Q, seven billion body bags. And it is considered one of the best Simpson movie parodies uh, in Simpson lore. And one of the highest honors the film has received is in 1994, it was selected for preservation in the U.S. National Film Registry by the U.S. Congress. I have to, we we always focus on the positive of the film, but you can't talk about the legacy without talking about the special edition of ET that was released in 2002. Uh, it's no longer in circulation. I'll just preface by saying that. Uh, but really what it brought about was uh, some digital and dialogue edits um, to be, I guess, you know, upgrade or update the film in a sense uh, for the, for that, the new generation uh, dialogue edit was really the only one I found was a small one where they changed um, terrorists. They changed, they upgraded the visual effects, like with the climactic scene where it didn't look so bad? A little bit. It still looked bad, but <laughs> but they, the dialogue edit was they changed from terrorist to hippie, uh, and then the guns uh, to walkie-talkies for the FBI or the government agents. Um, but yeah, they did update the visual effects to a degree, but Spielberg has since renounced to this version of the film saying that the 1982 release is the one that people should go to. So you can't even get the 2002 one anymore. However, something cool about that, when it was released in 2002, it premiered at the Shrine Auditorium there in Los Angeles, Warren, and John Williams performed the score live at the premiere, which I would have oh, loved man. to have been to me. Yeah, right. He, he's just had a concert here in the, at the Hollywood Bowl not too long ago, and he performed that as well. Uh, another reference within that, though, because it was so, you know, uh, lambasted when it came out, uh, South Park actually made an episode making fun of the E.T. re-release uh, entitled Free Hat. Coming this summer, it's the classic film that changed America. E.T., the extraterrestrial, the new redone version for 2002. All the E.T. effects have been digitally upgraded. All the guns have been digitally changed to walkie-talkies. And the word terrorist has been changed to hippie. Aw, dude, why would they do that? Yeah, hippies and terrorists are the same thing. No, dude, Spielberg changed terrorist to hippie to make E.T. more PC. You talk about spinoffs of the franchise and whatnot. We we talked about it, the the aborted sequel and the commercial, the short film sequel. But you got to talk about the video game ap- adaptation, the Atari video game. One of the biggest bombs in video game history, which is kind of ironic considering this is one of the biggest successes in movie history followed by the biggest bomb in video game history famously one of the worst video games in history for the atari in fact i'd read something that there's like they dug a hole in the desert and dumped all the old copies of the game in or something like that i think it was thousands of unsold cartridges yeah yeah so uh but it's uh it's a fun little uh pop culture uh uh, nugget uh i don't even remember the game I never played it, but I, I've watched because it was it's so famously bad. I have watched gameplay of how terrible it is, and it is terrible. 
And Roger Ebert of Chicago Sun-Times summed it up best when he said, quote, E.T. the extraterrestrial is a reminder of what movies are for. Most movies are not for any one thing, of course. Some are to make us think. Some are to make us feel. Some are to take us away from our problems. Some are to help us examine them. What is enchanting about E.T. is that, in some measure, it does all those things, unquote. That is going to do it for this episode of Replay Value. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And if you love what you hear, take the time to rate, review, and share with a friend. You can follow us on Twitter at ReplayValuePod. We are available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every other Tuesday, and we'll see you then. Bye! This has been a Waldo Pickles production. 